0: We are taking every thought captive for obedience to Jesus Christ. At least that's our aim in this series, not uh, that we would be able to take captive the thoughts of the myriads of people in the world today who think all kinds of things, but at least in our own minds, and our own hearts, we want to take captive every thought for the obedience Of Jesus Christ. And to do that, we have been trying to consider and understand the broad worldviews that surround us in America today and make certain that those ideas do not infect us as we try to serve Jesus Christ and understand the scriptures. We will be, during the course of the week, taking a look at more specific, focused kinds of uh, world views: environmentalism, feminism, hedonism, Gnosticism, and selfism. But for this day, we have been particularly paying attention to the broad, general views that dominate the world in which we live that is humanism and relativism, and tonight uh, we consider the idea of materialism and the consequence of that determinism. And we find this idea, like the others we discussed this morning, is no new thing really in the world. Perhaps as the debater said in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is no new thing under the sun. There is nothing new that men can come up with that they've not already devised in their hearts in opposition to God. But this is the strangest perhaps of all, as Psalm 14 and verse 1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. And of course he sees the consequence when in fact people eliminate God from their life. You understand that what uh, we're concerned about tonight is not so much the fact that people have denied the existence of God, but that by denying the existence of God, they fundamentally cannot understand human beings or understand the way in which we best relate to one another. That the materialist, denying that there is a God, denying that there is a spiritual dimension to life, also must deny that human beings have a uh, spirit, that we have an eternal soul, that we have a life after this life. And this is fundamental bedrock of the world in which we live, that idea that people are valuable because they are created In the image of God. That's been the bedrock principle on which Western civilization has been built. That the greatest achievements of Western civilization, the ideas of democracy, representative government, uh, human rights, equality, free enterprise, progress in the arts and the sciences, fundamentally rooted in the fact that God created this world to make sense and that He created man in His own image and that we have. the qualities that God has given to us, the qualities of rationality, and the qualities that are valuable because we are created in the image of God. It's absolutely amazing to me that we are so ready to give up this bedrock principle that has given us the kind of prosperity and the kind of good life that we have experienced in the United States in particular, but in the West in general, over the last hundred years or so. Up until about 300 years ago in 1600 in Europe, people had generally subsisted on a few dollars a day living in unsanitary conditions with poor nutrition, and then all of a sudden there's an explosion of prosperity in the world, an explosion of freedom, an explosion of science, and all of that really It comes about because, as Locke explains it uh, in his essay on two civil governments, that each one of us is created in the image of God, and therefore we are valuable and we have the right to life and the right to liberty and the right to our property, that we are, because we're created in the image of God, Valuable, and that we have to be treated that way. And a government that treats people as valuable is obviously a government in which we are capable of so much more than one that discounts the value of human beings. Of course, Jefferson took that idea from Locke and he expressed it in the Declaration of Independence, Then he said that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's fundamentally embedded in this idea that there is a God. If we take out of the equation God, then we take out of the equation the value of human beings and the unalienable rights that are so important to us. And just a hundred years ago, this cardinal idea that people are created in the image of God and are there so valuable was uh, put under wholesale attack by the intellectuals drawing on the supposed sciences uh, of the day. And uh, this uh, bedrock of uh, Western civilization, the idea that men are created in the image of God and are thus therefore uh, valuable, was attacked by Darwin who suggested that we're the result of some random evolutionary forces, by Marx who suggested that mankind is kept in bondage by the forces of history, the impersonal forces of history, and by Freud who portrayed men as psychological mechanisms without any control over our own decisions and desires, but being, as it were, just a biological machine. And, of course, this has affected the way in which we think about mankind in every aspect of his life. Whether or not we think that people are created with the dignity that belongs to those who are in the image of God or whether we think of them as just biological machines that are controlled by the impersonal forces of nature makes a huge difference in the quality of life that we are able to live And perhaps the most significant of these uh, contrasts is the idea people are determined in their behavior in the same way that the inanimate objects of the world and their behavior are determined by the uh, impersonal forces around about them. We can predict with pretty great precision, I never was very good at that, where the pool balls are gonna end up on the table. If we know the initial starting state, we know the uh, English on the ball, we know the forces, we can write the equations. Well, maybe not we, but there are people who can write those equations and predict exactly where those balls are gonna end up on the table. There are others who can practically make those things happen, uh, but uh, the idea that uh, those balls move as they're supposed to and that they are predictable because they move according to these impersonal forces is one thing, but to suppose that people are the same way, that our behavior is equally determined by the impersonal forces around about us is a demeaning misconception of man that emerges out of this idea there is no God and everything that we see around about us is just the whole world, that there is no spiritual dimension, that everything has a physical cause, that then there is no free will and there's no accountability for mankind. And free will becomes at once and the same time our shame and our glory. It is our shame because we as free moral agents, are not required as God's other creatures to perform the functions that he's designed them for. That the squirrel buries its nuts and the salmon swims upstream to where it was born and the lioness protects her cubs, that's the way God has designed them and that's the way they function. But a man may or may not do as he ought to and often he does not and that becomes his shame. But it is also man's glory that he is able to choose and able to willingly obey God. Uh, Psalm 8, and the uh, psalmist looking around at the world and uh, stars above and the creation of God is amazed. But the thing he is most amazed about is he considers that Psalm 8 and verse 3. When I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you've ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the Son of Man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, and you put all things under his feet. We marvel, and rightly so at the majesty of the universe, and the more we are able to understand the forces of gravity and the other uh, uh, laws by which the universe operates, we're able to measure uh, more and more the extent of the uh, universe and the number of galaxies and all the incredible forces that are involved in that. The more we marvel about that, and the, and the uh, psalmist reminds us of this. What is man that you are mindful of him that you have made him, and I think the proper interpretation of that, you have made him only a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor, made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. This is because we are created in the image of God, and we have the capacity to choose, which is our glory if we choose to serve God, but our shame if we choose not to do that. The constant refrain of Scripture then is we are to choose. Choose. They. uh uh, Israelites were told when Moses was giving them his farewell address and he is about to leave them in charge of Joshua and to send up onto the mountain and there to disappear from their view and there to go on into the uh, land that was promised to them and he says to them I call heaven and earth today as witnesses against you that I've set before you life and death and blessings and curses therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Joshua repeats that refrain at the end of his life when he says in that familiar passage, Joshua 24 and verse 15, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. People are different than the world around about them because there is a God who has created this world and that God has created us in his own image and he's given us the power to choose. And it is the constant refrain of scripture to say you need to choose and you have the capacity to choose. We have the ability to understand what the alternatives are. Jesus in Mark 7 and verse 14 calls the multitudes to himself And he says something that's not surprising in the context of Scripture at all. In fact, it's just exactly what you hear throughout the Scriptures. Hear me, everyone, and understand. And of course, uh, you know, that's the constant refrain of all of us who are involved in education. We say to the students, understand, listen, hear, and understand. And we're puzzled and amazed and disappointed when they do not understand just imagine God in heaven above who has, uh, in the same position, sent teacher after teacher, whether it was Moses or whether it was Joshua or whether it was only begotten son himself and then his apostles and says, understand, as uh, we read in uh, Ephesians 5 and verse 17, don't be foolish, but wise, understand what the will of God is. And how disappointed God is when, in fact, people choose to shut their minds, to darken their eyes, and not to understand what uh, he has set before them to understand so that they can choose, choose what is good, choose the blessings and not the curses, as Moses said. We are made so that we can understand and we can choose on the basis of that understanding. Of course... If there's no God, if there's no spirit, if there's no immortality, then there's no free will. There is no way for us to make a choice. If there is no God and we're just a result of the impartial, uh, impersonal uh, processes of the universe around about us. Because materialism makes no place for God and it makes no place for man. It denies that the fact there is right and wrong If the world is purely impersonal and purely material and the only things that exist are just these things that we touch and the things that we can measure and the things that we can manipulate, then there's no way to ascertain that this is right or this is wrong. Inevitably, it all just disappears into meaninglessness sooner or later. These concepts of materialism and uh, determinism undermine any sense of personal responsibility. If, in fact, we are the result of impersonal forces, then how am I personally responsible for anything that happens? How am I personally responsible for the things that I do if, in fact, the things that are do are just a result of the forces that are operating on me? It is such a wrong-headed view of the nature of man that uh, we have arrived at this point that we don't even understand what it means to be a man. Uh, we uh, confuse the idea of man with uh, animals uh, the other of God's creatures as if there were no difference God has created us in his own image and he's given us the power to understand and the power to choose and consequently he intends to hold us accountable but in fact uh, the world in which we live today has lost that concept and thus they've lost the concept of personal responsibility it is an erroneous concept of science that generates this viewpoint. The idea of science is that uh, there is nothing in the world except the things that we can touch and that we can only measure the things, uh, the only things that are real are those things that we uh, measure. That none of the rest of it is of any value at all, it doesn't even exist. And so they lose the concept of man being a uh, special creature of God, made in God's image. They forget the fact that uh, there is something beyond the world in which uh, we uh, live and move and have our being, that there is a spirit to man that can choose and that can make a decision and that can be held responsible. Science ultimately is not the final word, and uh, it has just limited itself, maybe usefully heuristically, to the things that can be measured. It's maybe a game we could play. How much can we explain about the world if we just limit ourselves to the things that we can measure, that we can touch? But they have left out the important things. The really important things about people are not things that you can measure in that way. We have this wrong headed view of mankind because we've deliberately limited ourselves to that which is not the most important thing about people. The most important thing about people are not the things that we can measure in terms of uh, yardsticks or rulers or uh, ounces or pounds or degrees or temperature. Those are almost irrelevant in comparison. To the greatness and the glory of mankind that we have the capacity to understand and we have the capacity to choose man has a spiritual dimension about which science knows nothing and so we have arrived at uh, this kind of position in the world in which we presume that there is nothing that distinguishes people from the rest of the uh, creation of man, Time magazine, 1994, talking about the origins of mankind, were they were just as they typically are, absolutely confident. There's no single essential difference that separates uh, human beings from the animals. Of course, what they would want is some kind of, you know, biological difference. They would want some kind of chemical difference. They would want something that would say that uh, here we can see a material difference. But it's not surprising that they don't find those things because we are created out of the dust of the earth in the same way that the animals are created out of the dust of the earth. What is different, of course, is Genesis 1 and verse 27 That God created man in his own image so that uh, we are different than the animals who are created out of the same earth, who are created out of the same stuff. We have the same kind of DNA processes that we have, but are not created in his image. Science has forgotten that there isn't a fundamental difference between man and the animals. And, of course, in forgetting that, they forget the important things. As Einstein said, not everything that counts can be counted, and not everything that can be counted counts. And though he was not really a uh, Christian, nonetheless, he understood people are different, and they are not just a result of material processes. There is something about mankind that science just cannot take into account And when they presume that man is just a result of physical processes, they've missed the important thing. They've missed what, in fact, the psalmist is uh, concerned about when he says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? If he was just merely a biological machine with no soul and no choice and no meaning and no accountability and only operated by the laws of nature in the same way that any other machine operates that we have created, then there would be no reason to be so amazed about that. The thing that is amazing about mankind is the very thing that science chooses not to see. And as a consequence, they presume that man is completely determined. There are a number of different kinds of determinism that they apply to the activities of man as they apply to the world around about them. There's kind of physical uh, determinism that there are these uh, forces in nature, chemical or mechanical, and that these operate on man and this is the sum total of man. There is uh, this kind of uh, sense that it comes out of sociobiology and neuropsychology that if we could explain all of the uh, neural impulses and the chemistry, and the neurotransmitters, then we could explain everything about why people do what they do. There's the kind of historical determinism of Karl Marx. Who says there is this thesis and then there's this antithesis and they collide and produce this synthesis and that moves us in this direction and that direction and the other direction and it is inexorable in history and that uh, there is no way that we can control that process. There's a kind of psychological determinism of Freud that says that we are comprised of these various kinds of forces, eros and thanatos, and they're buried in our psyche and our subconscious mind, our unconscious mind, and there they collide with one another, and we behave in ways that are produced by those kind of forces, and we have no way of controlling it ourselves. Well, unless, of course, you hire a psychoanalyst for uh, $200 an hour. Uh, well, actually a 50-minute session. And then there's the kind of behavioral determinism of Skinner, who says we're a product of the environment, that if the environment is this way, then this is the kind of person that we're going to be. If the environment was different, we'd be a different person, and we'd make different kinds of uh, choices, and we would behave differently. Uh, His predecessor, uh, Watson, suggested That if you uh, give me a group of children, you just tell me what you want them to be, and I can control the environment, I will make them whatever you want them to be. Doctor, lawyer, chief, uh, thief, or Indian chief, if I can control the environment, I can make them what I want them to be. That suggests then there's no personal responsibility that uh, finds its uh, fruition this day and age in sociological determinism that we are a product of our environment. And a person who grows up in one environment is going to be the product of that environment and is inexorably as somebody who grows up in a different environment. Of course, the point of view of the scripture is that God has given us self-determinism, that we can make choices and that we can choose different alternatives in our lives that we can escape the fundamental programming of our biology, that we can escape the uh, sociological forces around about us, that we can choose our own lives, and that choosing our own lives, we have a responsibility to do so. And we have personal responsibility and can be held accountable for the things that we do. There are, of course, uh, some limits on the kind of uh, uh, choices that we can make, But we do have, within those limits, the capacity to make different kinds of choices. What we see is the contrast between the biblical view of man and the uh, materialist view of man. The biblical view says there's personal responsibility. The materialistic view says there's only determinism. There are no choices. The the, uh, uh, Bible suggests that there's a personal beginning to the universe and a personal beginning of each man. The Bible, uh, the the materialist says, no, there is only an impersonal beginning. The biological approach says that we are just biological machines. The Bible says that we have the dignity that goes with being a, a creature in the image of God who has the capacity for understanding and for choosing. The materialist says the world is irrational We understand that the world is, in fact, uh, not irrational, but that there is rationality in the world. And we have the capacity for understanding this world in which we find ourselves. The argument, ultimately, for determinism is self-defeating if, in fact, we are the product of uh, these impersonal kinds of forces. And these impersonal forces produce the choices we make or the thoughts that we think then obviously there is no rationality. And there would be no uh, debate about uh, whether there is a God or not. The uh, materialist, the determinist, would be determined to believe that there was no God, we'd be determined to believe that there was a God, and there would be no need for having that kind of discussion or that kind of argument, because from the materialist point of view, it's illogical anyway. But we are not determined by our environment. There is plenty of evidence to suggest that mankind is not determined by his environment. There is of course Abraham as we read in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 14 uh, when he came out of the uh, uh, land of Ur the Chaldees That they were idol worshipers, but he heard the call of God and he left behind his society, his environment, and he chose to serve God. There was Noah, who was in a world that was so wicked, so completely given over to sin, that God said, I'm going to destroy man from the face of the earth. And yet we read in uh, Genesis 6 and verse 9 that Noah was perfect in his generation. That he was a man who loved in uh, service to god even though as god looks at the world around about he says every thought was evil only continually and god repented that he had made man and maybe of course the worst of them all is judas who was subject to the same influence of jesus christ that the other apostles were and yet he chose to betray him they had uh you know, those uh, Bible classes sometimes the uh, children have and, uh, you know, they show off what they have learned and they sit on the front row and the, and the uh, Bible teacher will ask them questions and they will answer. And of course, uh, they, uh, they were asking about the apostles and uh, one of them said, oh, I know Judas the scariest. Not Iscariot, the scariest, but somehow that's actually the truth. Judas is the scariest of all of the apostles He was with Jesus, he saw the miracles, he witnessed everything that they did and observed all the teaching and yet he betrayed him. He is not determined by his surrounding. He has the capacity to to make that choice as the others had the capacity to to make the choice to believe in Jesus Christ and to uh, serve him. The cities of Jesus' day in Matthew chapter 11 He points to the cities around about him, and in Matthew 11 and verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Jesus says the miracles that were done here did not sway you, But if they had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have listened, they would have observed, they would have repented. Clearly, there is choices that we can make. We are not determined by the environment around about us. One of the things that you can recognize about this kind of materialistic view of mankind, and you see it replete in the world around about us, is the uh, consequences that it exercises in the world in which we uh, find ourselves uh, today. And that is with various kinds of uh, misguided sorts of programs because we misunderstand man. We have no sense of what uh, is uh, the nature of man and so we have no sense of what kind of programs are gonna work for man. And a lot of the welfare programs today misunderstand the fundamental principle of people having the capacity to understand and to make choice. Uh, the welfare programs almost always exacerbate the problems they are designed to, to uh, solve because they don't fundamentally understand people and their dignity and their capacity to understand and their ability uh, to uh, make choices. And so they build in perverse incentives into the welfare programs. It's absolutely incredible. We worry about, as economists, the marginal tax rates that the wealthy are facing, and uh, we understand if you want people to quit buying these products, you raise the taxes on them, and incentives matter. And then we have a welfare system in which We provide uh, so much benefit, and then if a person works and they earn $1,000, they lose $1,000 worth of benefit, 100% marginal tax rate. They may be poor, but they're not stupid. They understand the incentives that are built into those systems. And they understand this, too, that when a government takes over the responsibility of, uh, of uh, the total care for individuals. A paternalistic program like that produces dependence and perpetuates the poverty that they assumed that they were going to eliminate. It is amazing that they fail to understand the fundamental principles it's enunciated in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 10. If man doesn't work, he ought not to eat, we are, capable of making choices and we need to give people, whether they are rich or whether they are poor, the dignity of the capacity to make those kinds of choices. In criminal justice, we have uh, misunderstood man and we have exercised the kind of leniency that as opposed to doing the good we would like to do, actually creates the harm that we were trying to avoid. That is, as Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 11 suggest, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set on them to do evil. If we punish that which is sin, then that discourages others from making that same kind of choice. But if we refuse to punish sin, and if we're lenient with those who have taken advantage of the system and benefited by that, then that not only fails, to change their behavior, it also encourages others to engage in the same kind of negative behavior. One of the things that uh, we recognize on a personal level is that uh, this misunderstanding about human nature leads to improper parenting and uh, poor educational outcomes. One of the things that we are told over and over in our relationships with other people this day and age is judge not that you be not judged which means, I think in their point of view, that we need to be tolerant of other people's behavior regardless of what it might be or what the consequences of it are likely to be. Now, of course, you know, we are certain not to take God's place in terms of judging others, but it is clear that the way in which the world quotes their favorite passage is that they intend that we should make excuses for every kind of immoral behavior as opposed to preaching the truth about what God requires of man. And we understand, too, that uh, we are never supposed to denounce uh, someone's behavior, especially if we're raising children. We never tell them their behavior is wrong, lest we scar them for life. We allow them to explore whatever they want to explore in the world. Of course, we forget the wisdom of God in Proverbs 13 and verse 24. He who spares the rod hates his son. He who loves him disciplines him properly. Proverbs uh, 27 and verse 17. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. There are times when we have to confront one another about improper behavior as opposed to just assuming that they're doing what they're doing because of the impersonal forces that have driven to that and they have no other choice about that. One of the things that uh, the Bible suggests to us is that people can learn better if we give them the truth. And uh, unfortunately, the... um, mechanistic, materialistic view of mankind, uh, suggests that people's behavior is already determined by the forces that have been set in place long before they were born, and there's nothing that they can really do about that. And so in education, we no longer provide discriminatory grades because the grades a person earns are not really matters of individual effort, but just social circumstances. We don't allow competition in intellectual matters in our society, which is absolutely amazing. You know, as an aside, I wonder if that's not why sports is more respected in our society today than are those who actually engage in intellectual activities. You know, if we, if we, uh, if we uh, treated uh, intellectual activities and professional uh, uh, professions in the way that we treat sports, maybe there would be more effort on the part of young people to try and succeed uh, and achieve in those areas. You know, we understand that in the sports field, there is a real meritocracy. There is real room for effort and for approbation for success Uh, If we treated probably GPAs and SATs with the same kind of respect we treat uh, ERAs and uh, points per game, maybe we'd get a different outcome in the uh, fields of uh, education. It is, uh, of course, an effort of education that we should not uh, have a system in which Those people who have benefited by social circumstances should benefit in this system as well. And uh, consequently, we presume they couldn't do any better than they've already uh, accomplished. And uh, we are unwilling to uh, push children to do better than they already have. And one of the other areas in which we find uh, inappropriate uh, understanding of man's nature is in terms of uh, therapy. If we view man as created in the image of God, then the approach that we take to trying to help them improve is going to be one in which we uh, uh, give them the kind of understanding that they need in order to make a different choice. But if, in fact, we see them as the result of deterministic forces, then uh, we uh, treat them as if they were some kind of uh, machine that needs to be fixed in some way. We look at people in the world today, and unless they are happy and adjusted, then we figure they're abnormal and they need to be fixed in some way. And we take the responsibility for fixing them as opposed to teaching them and helping them to make uh, better choices for themselves. One of the things that is amazing is that the world today has no appreciation for the value of pain and of suffering We tend to do away or or cover up any of the kind of uh, difficulties that people face in life. We don't understand what the scriptures teach us, that uh, pain and suffering give us an opportunity to glorify God as we uh, set an example of nobility and trust in the presence of others. That those kinds of circumstances give us an opportunity to develop uh, the kinds of uh, character that God wants us to have. The emphasis on happiness uh, in the world today leads to negation of any kind of guilt or shame. We have lost the useful concept of guilt in the world in which we live that that scene is a problem that needs to be eradicated as opposed to an evidence of a deeper problem in jeremiah 6 and verse 15 one of those jeremiah uh, 6 and verse 15 were they ashamed when they'd committed abomination no they were not at all ashamed nor did they know how to blush Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I shall punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. I I was always uh, amazed with my red hair and my fair skin and uh, blue eyes that, uh, you know, whenever I was caught in some kind of infraction in school, I always blushed, and uh, that was kind of shameful to me, but I read this passage and I think maybe that's a good thing, you know, that uh, to have lost the capacity to blush, and of course he's not talking about the physical blushing he's talking about the capacity to feel ashamed of what we have done that it is guilt that points us to seek out our wrong and to correct it it is guilt that drives us as it did those on the day of Pentecost to seek a way back to God but in the modern psychologized society in which we live guilt is seen as the evil 40 years ago Memminger published a book the title of which was whatever became of sins When is the last time you ever heard a national leader talk about the sins of the people and that uh, people need to repent of those sins and cry out as they did on the day of Pentecost, men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? Instead, when we find people who feel guilt over the things they've done, we want to somehow assuage the guilt as if that's the real problem, not the choices that they made that have led to that sense of guilt. C.S. Lewis pointed out that if in fact we treat people as machines and try and fix them, that we have uh, eliminated whatever kind of dignity they might have had. If we take a man who has made a uh, bad choice, committed a sin or a crime, and we punish that man, we have given him some respect You made a bad choice. You have to suffer the consequences for that. But if, in fact, we say, no, like a car that's had a a stuck gear and ran over somebody, we need to take you into the shop and fix you and put you back in service again, in that case, the person has lost their dignity. It's not as if we respect the fact you, you chose badly, and now you have to accept the consequences of that. You are just a machine that needs to be fixed. It is uh, to make, in some ways, harsher demands on people than the demands that God makes on people. The sense that, uh, you know, you, you have to be in conformity. We have to have some kind of therapy that changes or adjusts you until you actually conform to the patterns that we have decided are appropriate. Some psychologists uh, recognize the... the uh, error of that way not even from a Christian point of view but just from the fact that that doesn't make any sense that we're going to fix people we don't give them the opportunity to make their own choices in life or the respect that they make their own choices but that we want to make them all conform if we had the right kind of therapy the right kind of adjustment we make everybody the same and fit the patterns of the society uh, that uh, we have uh, designed today. Of course, that would probably change tomorrow. Thomas Wolfe talked about addictions as God in a bottle, and uh, the failure of psychotherapy to help people with that kind of a problem is evidence that the only way in which we can overcome those kinds of problems is by the living God who offers us something better. Thoreau said we all live lives of quiet desperation. Certainly the people who are without God live lives of quiet desperation. And it's only God who can provide for some opportunity for real transcendence over the problems of this life, over even the problems in our own uh, uh, psychology. One of the things that uh, maybe is worse about uh, this uh, Determinism is a negation of the sacred order. There is no room in this uh, uh, deterministic, materialistic view for the idea of a uh, spiritual world. And it is just really difficult for us to get past this sense that... uh, the materialistic world has imposed on us, that this is the reality, this is the real world, and that it operates according to these kind of predictable rules uh, of determinism, and that it is difficult for us to see beyond it and to see the reality of uh, the spiritual world to which we belong. Now, one of the things I find is is, uh, perhaps problematic about that is the kind of children's Bible materials that uh, many, Uh, people use in trying to teach their children about god or about jesus or about the bible stories and what you see in there is a a mixing together of uh, the sacred and the secular as if they are on the same level as if they are all the same kind of thing that uh, they teach the uh, same lessons and uh the schools about being nice that they teach in the Bible classes, and you see the pictures of boys and girls engaged in everyday activities, uh, drinking milk, feeding the cat, shaking hands, playing ball, exactly the sort of illustrations that you find in the secular uh, textbooks. All of that kind of mixed together with this idea of, oh, by the way, you know, there is Jesus, there is God. I mean, we really need... To to try and work harder at convincing our young people that there is a spiritual reality that is more important than the uh, material world around about us. There is this sense in which the world just can't grasp because of all the nonsense of uh, Freud and Marx and Darwin can't grasp the reality of a spiritual world and consequently they can't grasp the dignity of human beings. And consequently, that leads to some kind of fatalistic sort of uh, determinism in which people have an inability to uh, take personal responsibility for themselves and to change themselves uh, using the scriptures and using the encouragement of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit to be something better than they are it leads to this kind of, uh, of a dangerous sort of Popeye philosophy. I am what I am what I am, and that's, that's all that I know. And that's all that you can expect of me. Because after all, I grew up here, or I had these experiences, or have these kind of neurotransmitters that are functioning in my, uh, in my cortex at this moment in time. The Bible tells us we're called to be new creatures, that uh, we need to cease the practice of sin. We need to perform good works. We need to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, Titus uh, chapter 2 and verse 14, "...He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works." 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, "...Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, and all things have passed away." And they have become new but perhaps the most dangerous consequence of this kind of determinism is in religion itself and it becomes a barrier to the preaching of the gospel you know it isn't good news when you require someone to change and they cannot change when they're too busy learning to accept themselves as they are they are not amenable to the gospel When we try and talk to people about the good news of Jesus Christ, it's not good news to them until they understand how bad uh, shape they are in and what they could do or what could be done for them to improve their condition. When people think of the world as just materialistic and themselves as determined by their experiences then it's hard to preach the gospel to them and say, you need to choose for Jesus Christ because he's chosen for you. Sometimes our preaching has to start further back than we think when we encounter people of the world. You can't preach the good news till we teach them about the sad state that they're in. Francis Schaeffer once said that if he's given 60 minutes to preach to a modern man. He'd spend the first 50 minutes preaching to him about sin. And then when he cries out, as they did on the day of Pentecost, what must we do to be saved? Then you can tell them the good news about Jesus Christ. You know, the thing that uh, uh, good news means is that it's good to me. We read in the newspaper about uh, the uh, discovery of a cure for some kind of disease that uh, we have heard of some time in the past. And that's not really good news. But when we read, they have found the cure to the disease that we have. That's good news. And so sometimes what we have to do is convince them they have the disease before they are willing to accept the cure. One of the things that uh, Jesus said... John 12 and verse 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my words as that which judges him, the word which I have spoken will judge him on the last day. That there is a judgment coming is just something the world does not expect and they do not accept. But it is over and over in the scriptures that there is wrath stored up because we've made the wrong kinds of choices And having made the wrong kinds of choices, we're going to be held responsible for those choices. And that, yes, you know, there are some things we can't fix on our own, but Jesus has made a way for us to receive forgiveness of our sins. And that's why we preach, because people are accountable. We're made in the image of God, we can choose, we have chosen badly. And we need to understand that that's the case. And then we need to say, what is it that we can do? And then uh, when they cry out, men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? Peter can say, you need to repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And he can exhort them, as uh, Acts 2 and verse 40 says, with many other words, save yourself from this untoward generation. Not that we save ourselves by making the sacrifice or the the recompense or the payment. God has done that through Jesus Christ. But we have to make the initial effort to choose for Jesus Christ. And when we make that choice, there is good news and salvation available to us. We need to uh, preach people's personal responsibility. And we need to know our own personal responsibility, not only before God for the sins that we've committed and salvation that's in Jesus Christ, but our personal responsibility for preaching that gospel to the world that is in such desperate need of it. It's not an easy thing to do when they have this wildly different kind of world view, but it is our responsibility, and we need to accept that responsibility. If you're here this evening and you understand your responsibility before God and you understand the sacrifice that Jesus has made for you and uh, the gift that he has for you, if you can render obedience to him this evening, then we encourage you to make that decision this evening as we stand and sing this song.